welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning to you. So glad you're here with us at Gateway this morning. Thank you for taking time out of your schedules to join with us as a community. Um, As Anna mentioned, we're in the middle of a series or just begun a series on worship. Um, The goal is to kind of repristinate, you know, to uh, remind us as a community of why we do what we do, why we value worship the way we value it. And uh, last week I began the series by talking about the person that we worship, and this morning I want to talk about the priority of worship. And I want to begin it by looking, begin the message by looking at an Old Testament passage that might, as I read it, seem somewhat obscure to you. But if you would remember that the New Testament calls us a community of priests and kings, that, it, that we have a priestly function as New Testament believers, then um, listen to this passage through that grid that, that you and I and we together are, are priests. The passage I want to read to you is from Ezekiel chapter 44 and uh, verses 5 through 16, and I'm reading from the message translation. And as I do, you'll notice we make a jump from three categories or classes of priests, okay? It starts off, note carefully which persons are allowed to go in and out of the temple and which persons are not allowed. First category, Tell those rebellious people of Israel that I, the Sovereign Lord, will no no longer tolerate the disgusting things that they have been doing. They have profaned my temple by letting uncircumcised foreigners, people who do not obey me, enter the temple when the fat and the blood of the sacrifices are being offered to me. So my people have broken my covenant by all the disgusting things that they have done. They have not taken charge of the sacred rituals of my temple, but instead have put foreigners in charge. I, the Sovereign Lord, declare that no uncircumcised foreigner, no one who disobeys me will enter my temple, not even a foreigner who lives among the people of Israel. Second category. The Lord said to me, I am punishing those Levites who together with the rest of the people of Israel deserted me and worshipped idols. They may serve me in the temple by taking charge of the gates and by performing the work of the temple. They may kill the animals which the people offer for the burnt offerings and for sacrifices and they are to be on duty to serve the people. But because they conducted the worship of idols for the people of Israel and in this way led the people into sin, I, the sovereign Lord, solemnly swear that they must be punished. They are not to serve me as priests or go near anything that is holy to me or enter the the most holy place. This is the punishment for the disgusting things they have done. I'm assigning them to the menial work that is to be done in the temple." Then the third category, the Sovereign Lord said, those priests belonging to the tribe of Levi who are descendant from Zadok, however, continued to serve me faithfully in the temple when the rest of the people of Israel turned away from me. So now they are the ones who are to serve me and to come into my presence to offer me the fat and the blood of the sacrifices. They alone will enter my temple, serve at my altar and conduct the temple worship. So in this passage, God addresses these three groups of people who are functioning, or at least attempting to function as priests. The first group is, we could call them the profaned priesthood. These are people who are professing to have a relationship with God, but are actually complete outsiders. One translation calls them irreverent, 
unrepentant outsiders. These so-called priests are completely disqualified from any form of offering or service in the temple. The second category is what we might call the penalized ministry. These were the Levites who had indulged in idolatrous worship. They have come back into service and they remain priests, but they are penalized. They are allowed to minister to people, but they are not allowed to come near and minister to the Lord. The third category is the privileged ministry, the sons of Zadok, who were faithful priests who remained firmly committed to the Lord during the time when the people and the other priests were unfaithful. And their reward was that they were allowed to approach, to come near, and to minister to the Lord. And in the Hebrew, the word translated by our word minister is a, is a word shorath, and it means to attend as a worshiper. And it seems as you look at this passage that the highest privilege of ministry was to come near and to worship. Now, a passage like that might create all kinds of questions. Let's leave aside those questions and simply note that the highest calling, the most privileged calling of priests is to minister to the Lord with worship. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that as New Testament priests, that priority remains in place. Now, I'm incredibly aware that the thought of worship being our highest calling, ministry to the Lord being the highest priority, would be a stumbling block for much of the Pentecostal evangelical community, which actually has prioritized ministry to people as the highest calling of God's priests. So ministering to the lost in evangelism, to the unreached in mission, to the disenfranchised and marginalized in social justice, to hurting people in pastoral care and counseling. The first church that I was part of said basically that our call, our call to sacrifice was directed to evangelism and mission. All surrender was for the salvation of souls and nearly all ministry was directed to, to reaching the lost. And you might be sitting there thinking, Don, you can't possibly be against those things, can you? And, and the answer is, no, of course not. The church is called to be a missional community. We are in the lineage of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. However, I would want to say that our first priority in ministry is ministry unto the Lord in worship. And from that service, all kinds of service will flow out of that priority. This is a passage we'll look at later, but Luke 4.18 says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I think the order of words there is very significant, and also very deliberate, that from worship service flows. Again, as I say this, I can almost hear someone who's passionate about evangelism or missions thinking, you must be kidding. How can you possibly prioritize the humming of hymns while the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket? Now, I want to reiterate, it is not either or, it is both and, but there is an order, there is a priority that Scripture seems to lay down very clearly. Unapologetically, I suggest to you that our first calling as priests, the highest priority as a priestly people, is ministry unto the Lord in worship, and then following that and flowing from that ministry to people. John Piper uh, has written a book on, on missions, ironically, and he starts with a classic statement. He says this, mission exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not mission, because God is ultimate and not man. 
When the age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship is forever. Worship is therefore the fuel and the goal of mission. Uh, Brilliantly put. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Out of worship flows ministry. Now, I'm going to say something here that a lot of people would never articulate, but but a lot of people think, and actually Karen and I were talking about this the other day. You know, some people struggle over God prioritizing the worship of himself. And, And as I say, we wouldn't voice the concern because when we do voice it, it sounds so wrong. But in our darker moments, it does cross our minds. You know, what is it with God that he prioritizes the worship of himself? Is he some kind of divine narcissist? You know, a kind of eternal black hole that sucks everything into the irresistible center of the divine me. You know, does he create people so that they can sing his praises for all eternity while he sits on a big throne lapping it all up and saying, sing it again, John? In our clearer moments, we know that God cannot possibly be a narcissist. But what's the gift? How does this thing work? And I was thinking about it after our discussion at home. And here's, here's a humble thought, okay? I think, I think actually the Trinity is itself an eternally worshiping, adoring community. The best definition of worship I've heard is worship is simply love responding to love. And with that definition, I see the Trinity as an eternally worshiping, adoring community. They constitute a circle of divine love and adoration. The Father delights in and adores the Son, and the Son, in response, delights in and adores the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Father and the Son say, don't you dare sin against the Spirit because that's unforgivable. We treasure and delight in Him. There is this eternal community of adoration and worship. Ancient theologians, as they were trying to penetrate the depths of the Trinity, tried their very best to find a way and a concept that would try and describe this this community of worship and adoration. And they came up with the idea of it being a, a kind of a divine dance. Each of the members of the Trinity moving and deferring and seeking to honor the other. And the term they coined to try and capture the concept was a word, perichoresis. Now that might mean a lot to you, but but if you're a dancer, you might see the last part of that. Choresis is is the Greek root from which we get our English word choreography. It's the nature of love to overflow and expand. And the Trinity decided to create a world and a people to inhabit that world so that the delight, the adoration, and the love of that Trinitarian community could be expanded to include others in that perichoretic dance. Perhaps it could be likened to a husband and wife deeply in love with each other, desiring to expand the circle of their love to include children. The priority of and the call to worship isn't about God being at the top of the totem pole and creating us and letting us know in no uncertain terms that he's the top and we're the bottom and we're supposed to worship to help us remember that. It's, It's not some kind of insecure narcissistic deity demanding our allegiance and our worship so as to 
soothe his overinflated ego. Rather, it is the gracious invitation to share in the life and delight and fellowship of the Trinity, an invitation to join the circle and the dance of joy, of delight, of adoration, of worship. When we worship, it's love responding to love. It's receiving love and giving it back. It's what the Trinity does eternally. And we've been invited into it. Actually, I think that the whole narrative of Scripture, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, could be described as God's attempt to create and welcome people into that eternally adoring community. And what I'd like to do this morning is do a really rapid flyby from Genesis to Revelation. It will be rapid, don't panic, okay? said, I know that he spent a year in the book of Revelation. We better order lunch for the next six weeks. This is a real rapid flyby. And and in the beginning, Genesis uh, starts with creation, with man placed in the Garden of Eden. And I've talked to you about this before, but the ancient readers or listeners of Genesis understood those early chapters as the story of a God who is establishing a temple in which he can dwell. Eden wasn't just a garden, it was a sanctuary, and it's described in those terms. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, and sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophet describes Eden as a temple, as a sanctuary. John Walton, the Old Testament professor and scholar, says the Garden of Eden was not viewed by the author of Genesis as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland. It was an archetypical sanctuary, a place where God dwells and where men should worship him. So we're reading temple language. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This is much, much more than simply assigning to this primal couple the the role of head gardeners. This is priestly language. This is temple language. Exactly the same terminology is used in Numbers chapter 18, verse 5 and 6, where the priests of the tabernacle were instructed to keep the charge of the sanctuary and do the service of the temple. This is, this is exactly the same language. This is priestly temple worship language, not simply the role of gardeners. That primal couple were to lead the worship of all creation and of all creatures, and the goal was to extend the borders of this garden temple so that ultimately it would fill the earth. Throughout the scriptures, you have this phrase that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's God's ultimate intention. His ultimate purpose is that there would be no part of the earth that was not temple. Well, you don't have to go far into this story, Genesis chapter 3, where we have that purpose disrupted as Satan makes a successful attempt to distort and defile the worship of God. He defiles it by offering false worship, and that primal couple buy into Satan's lie and end up, in the words of Romans chapter 1, exchanging the worship of God for the worship of the, cre- of the creature. In fact, Romans 1 verse 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know, there's something worth noting in that verse, by the way. Worship and gratitude are Siamese twins. 
If you look at that, they didn't glorify God. They weren't thankful. Departure from and rebellion against God doesn't begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of one to whom the words thank you are redundant. It's important that as part of our worship, we offer thanks, and there are so many reasons for it. The result was that this couple were expelled from Eden as false worshippers. And the rest of the Bible narrative is the record of the ongoing saga in this war over worship. The historical books, you know, Kings and Chronicles, are largely the record of kings and people worshipping poorly or not at all. And the prophetic books are the messages of the prophets to kings and people calling them back to pure worship. This is the saga of the scriptures. In Exodus, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, the message of God to you is let my people go, and usually we stop right there, but it doesn't stop there. It says, let my people go that they may worship me. And that's a call that is recorded numerous times. Chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 9 of the book of Exodus. Let my people go in order that they may be a people of worship. Redemptive exodus always has worship in view. When we stop at redemptive exodus, we miss the point. The point is that we are then drawn into the life of the Trinity, the adoring, worshiping community. Redemptive exodus always has worship in view. With that thought in mind, look at a passage in Luke. Luke chapter 9, it's Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And it says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Here's Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus up the mountain about the death, the exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The exodus was the way of discussing the cross. And, and it says that this death on the cross will accomplish something. You know, death in normal circumstances is very rarely spoken of as an accomplishment. We, we might normally talk about the acquiescence or the submission to the inevitable, but this death is different. This death will accomplish something, and what it will accomplish is an exodus. When this word exodus is used here, it is the way of alluding to the original exodus, and every Jew listening or reading to this passage would make that interpretive jump of the exodus that will be accomplished in Jerusalem back to the exodus that was accomplished out of Egypt. The goal of the first exodus was to create a worshiping community within whom God could dwell. Redemptive exodus always has worship in view. And the goal of Jesus' ministry is to consummate the reality of which the original exodus is simply a shadow. Let my people go that they might worship me. God's looking for a, a community of the redeemed that go on to be the worshiping community, that begin to enjoy the life and, and adoration of the Trinitarian community. The, the war over worship as it goes through the scripture, reaches its climax in Jesus' ministry. You'll remember Jesus in the, in the wilderness where Satan comes to tempt him. And, and it says, the devil took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority or power I will give you and their glory, 
for this has been delivered. By the way, that Greek word delivered there, paradidomai, literally means it's been betrayed. The, the, the commission that was given to the primal couple in the fall was betrayed into the hands of the deceiver. He said, it's been given to me. It's the same word that's used where Jesus is betrayed by Judas as, uh, through a kiss. It's been betrayed into my hands, and I can give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I think I've italicized, or I think in the passage that was there previously, I italicized three words, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. You'll remember those words from the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. Satan's saying, These are mine. They have been betrayed into my hands. Jesus is about to win them back through the cross, and he wins them back on his his terms, not by false worship, by the true, pure worship and allegiance to his Father. I'll worship God and him only will I serve. And the exodus that Jesus accomplished through his cross and the community that he created is to be a community of priestly worshipers among whom he can dwell. You know, it says that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. What is the priority of priestly work? Worship. The sons of Zadok. The great privileged ministry is, first of all, coming near and, and worshiping, chosen to be a holy people. You know, the Bible tells us that in this age, the Father is actively seeking people to be part of that priestly community. He's actively seeking people through the work of Jesus on the cross, the redemptive exodus, so that they can come and be part of a worshiping community. Remember Jesus saying in John 4, the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Then you come right through the book of Revelation. We're nearly there. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22 brings us to the culmination of this, of this story. And we find that the garden temple of, of Genesis has become the city temple of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21 verse 22 it says there's no temple in the city because the whole temple is a city. And you might recall, you know, it's 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia. It's described in verse 16 of that chapter as a cube. And again, the Jewish mind immediately makes connections that so often go over our head. In the Bible, there's only one structure that is cube-shaped, and it's the Holy of Holies that is found in Moses' tabernacle and, and Solomon's temple. It is the place where the glory of God dwells. And this city is that place. The whole city has become, as it were, the holy of holies. The whole earth has become the place of God's dwelling. Remember, God's initial idea was that the garden would be expanded under the leadership of Adam and Eve, and that ultimately on the earth there would be no place that was not temple. We've reached the culmination of that story, and there is now no place on the new heavens and the new earth that is not temple. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In that time and in that place, mission and evangelism and ministry will have ceased. But worship is just getting started. And I want to suggest to you that when we come together as a community and, and worship, and I'm going to talk next week about the pattern of our worship, why we do what we do. It's incredibly important to understand why you do what you do. Otherwise, you're just carried along by ritual. 
oh yeah, yeah, we sing bright songs and so we clap our hands. And kind of clapping of hands is reduced to little more than keeping time or perhaps somehow in our minds expressing appreciation. But as we'll look at next week, you know, the clapping of hands is, is profound in terms of both worshiping God and, and resisting satanic attempt to, to lay claim to us. Both of those things are involved in, in, for example, the clapping of hands. When we lift our hands, we are doing more than simply a Pentecostal calisthenics. The Bible talks about the fact that we are a unity, body, spirit, and soul. You know, when people say, oh, well, I worship in my mind. I'm sorry, you tell that to your wife or your spouse. You know, I I don't give you a hug and I don't give you a kiss and I don't do that to my children because I love them in my mind. All of us would say, what? You need to see somebody. When your children are given something and they just look at you, 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 I don't know whether you do this, but I used to do it with my kids, I do it with the grandkids now, I pass them something and they'll go to take it and I'll hold it. And they go, oh, thanks, Papa. And then you let it go. You say, well, you know, the kid could say, well, I'm thankful in my mind. Not good enough. Sorry, you say thanks with your mouth. You say, well, yeah, yeah, I know, but, but, but Don, God knows my thoughts. Yeah, he does, and he knows that some of us are too proud and too bound up to express things. And he holds on to things and says, no, say thanks. Thank you. And, and there are times and places in the service where not only should we think thankfully, but we should express our thanks. We are, we're to be a worshiping community, and worship is not primarily a cerebral event. It is not something that goes on in the head. The Bible understands that we are spiritual, psychological, physical unity, and what goes on in our hearts and our heads should be expressed through our body. It it is naturally, we understand it. When we're angry, we clench our fists. When we're anxious, we wring our hands. When we're delighted, we clap and leap. When we're appreciative, we, we express it. And we're called to enter into that as a community, as a people. We enter into the perichoretic dance of love, of adoration. We get to join in the here and now what ultimately will be then and there. You don't have to be frightened, you know. Some people, oh, you know, these communities, they get together and all they do is worship, you know, gather around the campfire singing kumbaya. They're effectively useless. I'm sorry, but, but when you are truly worshiping and are in touch with the heart of God, service will flow, all kinds of service, mission, evangelism, social justice, care for people. That will happen, but it flows out of something that's born in the heart of God and communicated to us as we worship. A people in touch with God will always be involved with people and their needs. We will serve, but the service will be birthed and bathed in our ultimate priority as priests, and that ultimate priority is worship. Let me finish by quoting uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, and Musos, you might like to come as I do this. As I read this quote, um, you'll see it's a a kind of, um, I was going to say parody, that's not the right word because it's not making fun of, but but the quote is built around 1 Corinthians 13, the passage on love. You'll kind of hear the cadence of it as I read this quote. In his book on worship, Wright says this, Worship will never end. Whether there be buildings, they will crumble. Whether there be committees, they will fall asleep. 
most of them are already asleep, so you don't have to worry. Whether there be budgets, they will add up to nothing. For we will build for the present age, we will discuss for the present age, and we will pay for the present age. But when the age to come is here, the present age will be done away with. For now we see the beauty of God through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now we appreciate only in part, but then we shall affirm and appreciate God, even as the living God has affirmed and appreciated us. So now our tasks are worship, mission, and management, these three. But the greatest of these is worship. The greatest of these is worship. I, I long that we would be a responsive community, a people who are learning what it is to worship. And I do understand how difficult that can be for many people. Having come from a background where perhaps the liturgy was very constrained and, and everything was nicely ordered, the thought of actually raising your hands is a frightening thought for a lot of people. Maybe you can remember back to the first time you did it and you, you were sure there was a spotlight on you and the whole world was watching, you know? Um, we, we all, we, we're all an incredibly self-conscious bunch of people. I think partially worship is to lift us out of that and to help us focus on the adoration, the love, the delight, and the joy of that community, and we begin to see the beauty of the Trinity and the, res the only response. Like Moses last week, when he saw God pass by, the only response is worship. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.